Welcome to Grace Abounds. I'm Pastor Jen Shaw, and this month we're doing something a bit different. I'll be answering the questions you send in. Questions about the Christian faith, the church, the Bible, anything you may have always wondered about but never asked. Email your questions to pastor at stjohnslutheran.church. I look forward to hearing from you, and I hope these words build you up in faith, hope, and love. So here's one of the questions I got. Please share the many experiences that led you to be pastor here at St. John's Lutheran Church. <laughs> um, it was kind of a different, the see person who asked that, that's our question. <laughs> um, it's a little bit of a different question than I had expected, but I thought it makes sense to start there, right? Because here I am up here um, doing the best I can to answer your questions. So where does that come from and who am I and you know, why am I here? So the many experiences, I don't know that I can get to all of them. Obviously, we only have so much time. But it starts with the fact that I fell in love with Jesus. I love Jesus. That's kind of in a nutshell, uh, the motivation there. When I was young, many of you know, I attended an Assembly of God church, Assemblies of God church as a child. I had a very wonderful experience there, uh, wonderful people there. Some different theology understandings um, that I hold now uh, as, a, as a Lutheran pastor, but certainly had a very, very visceral experience of the presence of Jesus in my life. Always loved Jesus, went to college, had a bit of a faith journey there that I've shared about in the past. Then uh, the Lord led me to Ascension Lutheran Church in Thousand Oaks some years ago, which I've also shared about. In fact, we have a couple of our new folks who are joining us also have a long history at Ascension Lutheran in Thousand Oaks. Again, wonderful experience, great pastors, love the folks there. Joined a small group there, small group Bible study. Lots of people there at the time were going, going to Fuller Seminary in Pasadena. And I started to think, well, you know, I love Jesus. I love people. I love school. I love learning. Maybe I can go part-time, you know, just kind of see what seminary might be like. Thinking I would go there and get a, a master's degree to, and then a doctor to teach at the college level. That was initially my goal. Got into Fuller, started going to Fuller. Then started to feel that maybe the Lord had something different in mind for me. Not that I didn't have reservations about that, honestly. Um, I, I take being a pastor very seriously, and I wasn't entirely sure um, that I was up for it. So a lot of prayer, a lot of discernment, and then when people have asked me to share sort of that call story, one it's a journey, right? But one very pivotal moment was when I was early on at Fuller, and I visited Ascension, and I'm sitting in the pews, and I'm watching the pastors prepare communion. And that voice of God inside my heart said, don't you want to be a part of that? And yeah, yeah, I want to be a part of that. And as wonderful as professors are, and I, and I had, had some great professors I shared last week about Dr. Glenn Stassen, Pastors have this amazing privilege of being invited into people's lives in incredibly meaningful moments. Baptisms, of course, and Sunday worship, of course, but I mean, when I was an intern, I stood with a family at 10 o'clock at night whose trailer just burned to the ground. 
I've been in hospital rooms with people when their is going home to the Lord. I've, had, I've been with some of you in some really challenging stuff, um, which, is, which is such an honor. Um, and as hard as it can be, also such a gift in the pastoral role. So I decided, all right, Lord, I feel I'm called into this. So I uh, pursued a Master of Divinity degree, which is what you need to become a pastor in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. And then I did a, a Lutheran year at Pacific Lutheran Theological Seminary. And then I did a year-long internship. So that's five years of additional education past my bachelor's degree um, to get here. And then one more story about that. The call process, the first call process, and this is my first call. This is the first church that I've pastored, have for the past six and a half years. It's a little bit like the NFL draft. <laughs> Seriously. There's this, there's this whole group of students who are now ready for call, and then all the bishops get together, and they kind of decide, okay, well, I want her, I want him, I think she'd be good here, I think I've got a church for her, and they kind of decide who's going to be assigned where. So this was October of, must have been 2015, and I thought I was going to get a call from our resource counselor at PLTS telling me what region I'd been assigned to. And there are nine regions. So, you know, this is region two, the the Southwest USA region. That's what I thought I was going to get. What I got instead was a call from Bishop Murray Fink, who was bishop at the time. And this is the first day I'm eligible even to start the search for a church. And Bishop Murray Fink called and said, congratulations, you've been assigned to region two. You've been assigned to the Pacifica Synod, which is southern southern california side note i did not restrict i did not say that i won't go anywhere you send me um but i was sort of internally praying that maybe the dakotas weren't in the offering nothing against them but i just really don't like the cold (laughs) like lord if that's where you really want me to go um and of course my family's here in southern california right so what a gift that i got assigned to uh, southern california synod And then he said, and by the way, there's this church that I think might be a fit. And it was this church. Went through the interview process, went through the process here, started here in January. So on the day I was even eligible to even start the call process, I was told about this church. So I'm deeply, deeply grateful to be here. Um, So that's the answer to that question. What what led me to be a pastor here at St. John's? I could, I could say much, much more about that, but there's a little brief answer to that question. And the reason I feel so, so, so blessed to be here, one of many. Next question. I should mention, if anybody has any follow-ups in the moment, I'm open. Or if you think of stuff, you can always email me later. Okay. What does it mean to be made in God's image? That is a great, big question. It's, it's actually a principle called the Imago Dei, Dei God, Imago Image, Imago Dei, which I spent a lot of time studying in seminary, right? It is one of those big questions, like, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? So I thought what I would do is read the passage that this question is based upon, which is Genesis 1, 26 and 27, Genesis 1 tells the beautiful story of God creating the world 
in order, the first day, the second day, the third day, and goodness and beauty, and it's all declared very good. It's what Richard Rohr calls original blessing, which I love. He says we tend to start with the problem, original sin, but we should really start with the blessing, with the grace. Um, Creation and beauty and goodness always comes first and will outlast in the end. So here's Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God's made all this beautiful world and the plants and the animals. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So that's where that question comes from. It's first chapter of the Bible. The first thing scripture tells us is that God made us and everything else good. So what does that mean? Well, it means in the Christian tradition and in others in the Jewish tradition that every human life has dignity and value and worth. I mean, we reflect God in some way. We bear in our very being that, that image that, of who God is. So it's that psalm, you know, who, who are we that you're mindful of us, but you have made us a little lower than the angels. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. So image of God is a core of Christian sociology as well, Christian anthropology. Who are we? We are certainly flawed. Uh, we, we sin and we reflect the image dimly sometimes, but we do reflect the image of God. And every human being has that. Every human being is created by and beloved by God always. So that's why it's such an important thing that we talk about a lot. It probably isn't just in our, just in our physical appearance, right? Because we all look so different and we're all so wonderfully diverse and and there are so, so many of us, and, and God is spirit, of course. So it's not maybe just solely our, our material appearance, our physical appearance, although that is certainly important. C.S. Lewis once wrote that God likes material. God made it, and Jesus came in the flesh, right? So that's important. But God is spirit, so how are we sort of like God? What does it mean to be made in God's image? Some people would say... It is our ability to reason. The fact that we know that there is a God and we can communicate with this God and God communicates with us and we can think through things and we're rational beings. We don't just act on instinct the way that animals who aren't humans do. Some say, in addition to that, also we have moral agency. We can make choices. Uh, As Adam and Eve made some poor choices in the garden, as Genesis 3 recounts, we we actually have the ability to make choices that have consequences and know that there are consequences. So we have free will, we have moral agency, we have intellect, and certainly those are ways in which we reflect uh, God, who is the ultimate free being, of course, who has moral agency, who, who says in Isaiah, come, let us reason together. I would say... It's more relational than that. I I would move it a little bit so much out of the head and into the heart as well. Because it reflects the question, if we're made in God's image, who is God? 
And I believe, and the Christian faith, again, another foundational belief of the Christian faith, is that God is relationship. God is a community of love, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. An eternal, never-ending, complete, beautiful, generative, life-giving relationship of love. So we are made in the image of God to be relational beings, to be in relationship with God, to be in relationship with, that, with each other. That's, that's who we are. That, that defines us fundamentally. You know, and Jesus said the greatest commandments, love God and love each other. Love your neighbor as yourself. So to be made in the image of God is to be made as a being designed for love. I think that's an answer that I hold to and I think really speaks to who we are. One other thing, it's the creation account. God is creative. Dallas Willard once talked about heaven in terms of creativity. His vision of heaven, and of course we don't know, is that we actually go out, to get, go out and create worlds, that we, we get to be generative and creative and, and artistic and make beautiful things the way that God does. And so the fact that we can be creative and generous and generative is also a way in which we're made in the image of God. And one more thing about that. When we say Jesus came in the flesh, fully human, fully divine, that's another core theological statement, completely God, completely divine, and completely human, not half and half, (laughs) sort of uh, fully both, but also fully human in the sense of he showed us what it means to be human. This is a fully human human being. This is who we are when we are as God created and intends for us to be. So Colossians says he is the image of the invisible God. So when we want to know what it really means to be human as God our creator intends for us to be, we look to Jesus, fully human, fully made in the image of God is who we are. And fully God is who Jesus is reflecting that to us. Follow-ups on that? Making sense? Okay. (laughs) Good. I see nods. That's good. So here's kind of an interesting question. Demons might be another subject to explore. How to explain the pigs? Do any of you know what that reference to pigs might mean in terms of demonic? Yeah, some of you are nodding. So let's just go to Mark to, to put that a little bit in context. It's, it's recounted in Matthew and Luke as well, though. But there's this series of stories in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels. John is, is a very unique gospel and, and tells the same story, but a little bit differently. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's this whole series of events that demonstrate that Jesus has power over everything that could ultimately do us harm. He calms a storm at sea. He feeds thousands on a hillside with five loaves of bread and two fish. Before this episode, after it, he heals a woman who had been ill for 12 years. He raises uh, a young girl back to life. So... It's demonstrating that the natural elements, illness, death, disease, Jesus, a lack of resources, Jesus has power over all of this. 
And Jesus has power over demonic forces. So in the middle of these stories, there's a story of Jesus who goes over to the Gerasenes and he encounters a man who's, who's out in the graves. He's, he's uh, possessed by demons. It's that famous exchange where Jesus asks for his name and he says, we are legion because there are so many demons that have possessed this gentleman and Jesus casts out the demons and heals the man which again, to me, is actually the point of the story, right? <laughs> the important thing is that Jesus brings healing and freedom and social restoration and grace into this person's life. But there is this odd detail where the demons say, don't, don't send us into the abyss, you know, and Jesus says, okay, you can go into this herd of pigs over there, and then the pigs run off a cliff and into the waters. And... People have asked me this, about this before because it's, it's just odd, right? It's, especially to our modern sensibilities, that's just a strange story. And honestly, sometimes there are things in the Bible that are just kind of strange and kind of tough to understand. And I, I realize I'm, I'll give you the answers, but always remembering these are, these are from my heart and knowledge, the best that I can do, but bowing before the mystery of God. Uh, we certainly don't have all the answers. St. Augustine once said, if you think you understand God, it's not God you understand. <laughs> so there certainly is some humility in that, right? Is that we don't, there are some things in the Bible that I just, I don't know, they're, they're tough to explain. So in this case, I, I think what I would say is, the Old Testament doesn't have a very advanced demonology. They, they don't actually talk about demons a lot. They don't talk about the afterlife very much. There, there's a different sensibility there. The New Testament, especially the synoptic gospels, take demons very seriously. A lot of what Jesus did in the narratives of the synoptic gospels is cast out demons, has conversations with demons, tell, tells demons to be silent or to, to get out or to stop tormenting people. So... However we understand them today, the New Testament takes them very seriously. So I would say, I think it's a little bit of a mistake. You know, some people make the argument that in, in those times, they didn't understand things like mental illness. They didn't understand epilepsy. They didn't understand diseases that would make people seize. So they would attribute it to demonic forces. I mean, that is one way to answer that question. But I, I hesitate for a couple reasons. One, I do think it doesn't take their perspective. I, I think it brings a modern judgment to their perspective that maybe doesn't take it quite as seriously. And I also really want to disconnect. The scary route that that can go is then thinking that people who do experience physical or mental illness are somehow, it's because they're demon-possessed. Um, at, which kind of implies there's some moral culpability, or it, it just gets into some unhealthy territory, I think. So, yes, today we understand that there are diseases that cause people to behave in ways that to us are uncomfortable and inexplicable, and, and, and thanks be to God, we have a lot of things in our day and age that can help with mental and physical illness. So, I understand we live in a different world, but I also want to take that seriously. I do think there are supernatural spiritual forces 
that work against the will of God. I think it's, it's hard to look at the biblical narrative and honestly our own experience today and say that, that they don't exist. There's that saying, you know, the greatest trick the devil ever played was to make us think he didn't exist. I think that's a challenge in our kind of cynical, increasingly secular, rationalistic, scientific... Well, if we can't explain it, it doesn't exist. Which is kind of an arrogant position when you think about it. If we can't understand it, it isn't real. There's a lot of things we can't understand and are very real. So I think Paul's... The way Paul puts this in Ephesians is really helpful. So this is what I will say... um, I think there are demons. I think we need to take them seriously. I don't think we can blame them um, for either physical or mental illness or our own poor behavior, like the devil made me do it. Um, I think we have free moral agency. But I don't want to dismiss them. So here's, here's how Paul puts this in Ephesians when he's talking about the armor of God, how to defend from those against those spiritual forces. He says... Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Cosmic powers and principalities, spiritual forces of evil. I think that's a really helpful way to put it. Um, but I just want to end with saying, Jesus said, greater, you know, do, in this world you will have trouble, but do not fear, I have overcome the world. And as First John puts it, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. I, I know for some people talking about demons and evil forces and spirituality can be a little bit scary. But as Paul says, it need not be. Because we are strong in the Lord. Because the Lord is greater. As Jesus demonstrates, he is stronger and more powerful and will ultimately prevail over anything bad, evil, and destructive in this world. Including destructive spiritual forces. So one more question, and then we'll wrap it up. How should we be regarding angels? Flip side, right? We talked about demons, these supernatural spiritual forces of evil, angels, supernatural spiritual forces for good that that do the Lord's will. Demons oppose God's will. Angels do God's will. Is it wrong to pray to them? So this is kind of a second part of that question. There are Christians who believe in Jesus and pray through him for all other concerns and praise his name. But where individual concerns lie, they believe in using a guardian angel. So, first of all, unlike demons that aren't really as prevalent in the Old Testament, angels are all over the Bible everywhere. Uh, Angels sing about the birth of Jesus. Angels are messengers. The word angel in Hebrew means messenger of God, an agent of God, someone who announces God's arrival or what what God is going to do. You know, the angels sing that a savior is born. Angels are messengers who who do the will of God, who communicate with us, uh, who show up and generally terrify people. Usually the first thing an angel says is, don't be afraid. Um, Because, right? Supernatural, spiritual being of power. So, yes, 
just like I believe there are demons and, and evil spiritual forces, I believe there are angels and, and spiritual forces for good. Um, I believe there's more going on than we may always be aware of. As far as praying to them, you know, I ha- it's, it's a little bit like with praying to the saints, right? And, and, and all due respect to our, our Catholic brothers and sisters, this is a long tradition to pray to Mary, uh, to pray to, to the guardian angel, to pray to the saints. But I once had a Catholic friend tell me that, that some people do understand it in that way, but really in Catholic practice, you're not actually praying to them the way you would pray to God. And they explained it this way. When you ask a friend to pray for you, which I hope we do all the time, right? We're not praying to them. We're asking them to intercede for us on our behalf, to show us that support, to be in companionship with us through this difficult thing. So I say to a friend, will you pray for me? That's kind of how you can understand the saints. You say to a saint, will you pray for me? Not that you're praying to the saint, although some people do understand it that way, but that you're asking the saints and the angels to pray for you. may seem like a fine distinction, but I think it's important. And so as a Lutheran, we ask our friends to pray for us. We don't typically ask saints and angels to pray for us, but that, you know, the Catholics do, and that's kind of their understanding. So in sum, I would say, no, we don't pray to anybody but God. But we do ask lots of people to pray for us. And I think that's fine. I think that's okay. Um, and one final thing on that. Luther, you know, when Luther, at the start of the Reformation 500 years ago, there were those who were iconoclasts. They went so far in Luther's teaching that they thought, we can't have any statues of Mary. We can't have any stained glass windows. We can't have music. We can't have anything that, that would be mistaken for God or that can distract us from the worship of God. So we got to break it all down. We got to get rid of all the statues. We got to get rid of the stained glass. We got to get rid of all the music. Just, just worship. And Luther said, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> if those things are helpful in worshiping God, they're good things, as long as we don't mistake what their role is. And a lot of people weren't literate, right, in that time and place. So the stories in the stained glass windows actually helped teach them the Bible. So if there is a beautiful stained glass window, if there is a statue of a saint, if there is a beautiful Bach cantata that reminds you and helps you of who God is and helps you worship God, that's a beautiful thing. We don't need to get rid of that. The problem is when we mistake the thing for God. It, but it's okay to have beautiful, worshipful things that help us worship the Lord, that remind us who God is. We need those things. So I'll end with this. There's a quote from Pope Francis talking about creation and being made in the image of God and and spiritual forces. And it's just a beautiful quote, so I'll end with this. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, which is Psalm 33, 6. This tells us that the world came about as the result of a decision not from chaos or chance, and this exalts it all the more. The creating word expresses a free choice. The universe did not emerge as the result of arbitrary omnipotence, a show of force or a desire of self-assertion. Creation is the order of love. God's love is the fundamental moving force in all created things. As the Book of Wisdom notes, 
for you love all things that exist and detest none of the things that you have made. For you would not have made anything if you had hated it. Our very existence demonstrates that God loves us always. Amen. Thanks for listening. Each week's episode is edited by Nick Cox. Music performed by our St. John's Worship Band. Sermons by me, Pastor Jen Shaw. Make sure to subscribe to hear each week's message. If you'd like to know more about St. John's mission to know Christ and make Christ known, to share the life-giving word and do the life-giving work of Jesus, visit our website, stjohnslutheran.church. May God bless you on this day and in all the days ahead.